I, you know, I keep going back to that that kid, that that boy, um, who was a boy. There's not no two ways about it. This was not a grown ass man. This was a this was a kid, and thinking about what I would tell my younger self and all of those questions and all the rest of it and looking back over this process and thinking about the journey that we've got on. And I've been, I did this thing recently where I visualized literally going back to and sitting on the edge of the bed and talking to my younger self and my younger self going, dad, <laughs> what are you doing there? And actually me going, no, it's, it's me, your 52 year old self. And me telling him about, this and to just hold tight you're not going to remember this in the morning when you wake up but this is going to be an incredible roller coaster ride but i'm inspired by this journey and also all the people that i've spoken to they just they're fucking amazing they are fucking incredible people that have taken part in this and shared their lives and their stories and i'm so grateful for them taking part in this but also for absolutely everything that they've done for this. These are our foot soldiers. I say this all of the time. These are the people that got us from A to where we are today. My name is Mark Thompson and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist, and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986, who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy, and prevention, it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history. Moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. The government did not charge for any other infectious disease. They only they singled out HIV as the one infectious disease where if you were an undocumented migrant, you'd have to pay. So it was another example of stigma we now have standards of care that come from those days. Plain, simple, common decency. That's all, that's all people expect, it's just common decency. Through coalition working, we've made a difference. We've made a difference in England and the rest of the UK and other parts of the world. Why do I do it? Because last night someone emailed me who I was able to help access HIV treatment, who had been unable to navigate the health system.
I think that HIV has just kind of slipped away from the public consciousness and the public conversation over the past 20 years because we don't see people sick and dying anymore. We don't see the physical manifestation in the same way. And it raises its head every single year with World AIDS Day, you know, the TV programs that might come out. So 2021 has been really interesting that it's been at the forefront of so many conversations. But I think that we can see in the high levels of stigma that are reported in recent reports that have been carried out that HIV isn't part of the consciousness because people still have outdated understandings of what it means to have HIV. I think people know now that you're not going to die if you get HIV, but I think people still think that it's highly infectious, which means it's highly stigmatized. There are only certain people who get it because of particular acts. And there was a certain level of prejudice and a, a feeling that people who get HIV still deserve it. By the early 2000s, it was becoming apparent that many of the new diagnoses were amongst especially migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. And the demographic of people living with HIV was changing very rapidly. We had to think about the particular needs of women. We had to think about racism. We had to think about whether the health service was fit for people coming from other countries. And it absolutely wasn't. Uh, my name is Youssef Azad, and now I am a freelance writer. So Youssef, you worked at the National Age Trust. Can you just tell me a little bit about the history of um, NAT and why it came about? National Age Trust is an NGO, a charity, and was founded as such in 1987, but by the government. And that itself was interesting in the context of the HIV epidemic, which was really in the early years all around grassroots organizing and the government decided that they needed to be a sort of national charity to help coordinate the sector and generally act as a sort of coordinating body for the charity sector around HIV. But I joined FEBIT later in 2004. Almost around the time I joined, the government enacted laws to make sure that people without clear legal residency status in the UK were denied free HIV treatment. One big policy agenda that we immediately had to deal with was HIV, healthcare access and the needs of migrants in the UK. I mean, for the, for the sake of people who will be listening, just talk me through how one would go about changing that policy. You, you need to marshal your allies and you need to marshal your arguments. In terms of your allies, of course, you need not only all of the HIV voluntary sector to be on side, but also you need to encourage people living with HIV to speak out and be activists on the issue. Mm -hmm. And also doctors and nurses, and very importantly, um, medical staff who can see firsthand the impact. It was very powerful to have the testimony of doctors and nurses who said this person came, they were diagnosed, they were told that they would have to pay to get treatment and we never saw them again. And certainly a key argument must be a human rights argument, the right to health, which we made and it was very important. There is also a cost argument. Money is always a very powerful argument to a government. 
So if you can make the point that if you deny someone treatment, they're just going to end up very ill and in hospital on an intensive care ward, using up far more money being so seriously ill than they would if you just gave them relatively cheap treatment. That was another argument. And then there was also, and this became increasingly clear as the evidence developed, a prevention argument. Mm. Because as we now know, and it began to be apparent in the early 2000s, if you're on treatment and you have an undetectable viral load, you can't pass HIV on. New HIV drug classes have come out in recent years. Early treatment with antiretrovirals can prevent HIV-positive people from developing AIDS and the diseases it causes, like cancer. Now we have several classes of HIV drugs that are designed to block the virus at specific points in its life cycle. Used in combination, they have the best chance of keeping HIV at bay, lowering the virus's ability to reproduce and infect and ultimately to cause death. Why on earth would you not give treatment to somebody simply because of the colour of their passport when you, as a result, allowed them to continue to be possibly infectious and thus encourage the spread of HIV in the community? Sadly, I think the human rights argument, though I think it's an obligation on one to make it, was not that effective in terms of changing the government's mind. And that's to the shame of the government. I think the most effective argument in the end, because we won, took seven years, but we we got the change and everyone now can get HIV treatment if they're living in the UK, irrespective of their residency. The argument that was the clincher was treatment as prevention. A big leap in HIV treatment came in 2010. A study showed that taking a daily dose of antiretrovirals not only helped those who were HIV positive, but could also protect HIV-negative people from becoming infected. In 2012, the FDA approved the drug Truvada for pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. When you take PrEP every day, it can lower your risk of catching HIV to almost zero. PrEP is a pill, cost pennies to make, is really easy to use, and has, for most of us, very, very few side effects, if any side effects. Most of us who take PrEP take it alongside our morning vitamin pill or the pills that we take before we go to sleep. It's had the biggest impact on HIV incidents when it's been introduced than anything we've ever seen. I think PrEP is interesting because it's so recent and it shows that within the policy world of government, stigma still exists. So I can remember sitting in, in meetings in the early 90s with some of the, the early staff members at the National AIDS Trust. And I can remember one of the really brilliant staff members, Kerry at NAT, saying to us, the more radical you are, the more radical we can be. Hello, this is Will Nutland. <laughs> <laughs> we were always here. So the first thing I need you to do is just tell me your name and what you currently do. I'm Will Nutland. I'm the co-founder of Prepster and also the Love Tank, which is a community interest company that promotes the health and well-being of 
um, underserved communities. So I met Will, first of all, in around 1996. And then we kind of lost touch for a little while. And then I met him again in 2003 at Substation South in Brixton at the underwear party. And I was there in my little short shorts. And uh, we just had a couple of beers and we was like, there's a great job going at THT. You should look into it. And uh, we've been working together ever since, which is coming on nearly, you know, 20 something years. But yeah, we've been friends and buddies for 25 years. How short were you short? <laughs> really short shorts. <laughs> Your infamous short shorts. There's like little disco shorts. Put it this way, I couldn't fit into them now and I probably shouldn't either. <laughs> but I wore them with tube socks, so that's fine, Mum. So in 2009, I started a part-time doctorate in public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on the acceptability of PrEP. In 2010, the results of a big international trial came out that showed that PrEP really worked. And so... This is what I started to focus my doctoral research on. And um, we've got this pill that can prevent HIV. How acceptable might this pill be? And how could we get this pill to be made available in the UK? And through that research, and I went to a bunch of meetings and I became increasingly disheartened about the approaches that were being used, how we were talking about sex. And I remember going home and sending you an email saying, Mark, we've We've got to do something. And we talked about, let's put a leaflet out. Let's get a leaflet out that talks about PrEP and tells people what it is. And then maybe people will read this and there'll be some anger and some activism. And Richie, who was living with me at the time, he's a graphic designer. Richie said, it can't be a leaflet. People don't read leaflets. It has to be a website. And so we, in all of our spare time, I was supposed to be finishing my doctorate and writing it up. We created this website. Um, called Prepster. Prepster was always supposed to be in two phases. Phase one was set up the website, tell people about Prep. Phase two was going to be about buying generic Prep online and testing it. For some of the time, at least, there was this parallel process that was going on, whereby lots of activists, their goal was getting Prep for anyone who needed it for free through the National Health Service in the UK, which is a very admirable goal and and supported that goal. But meanwhile, we knew that there were people who needed PrEP right now, who needed PrEP this week or today. When a new drug or technology is introduced into the National Health Service, there are a whole load of processes that have to take place. And those processes are the right processes. Otherwise, we have politicians making decisions about what technologies are available rather than it being evidence-based and looking at cost-effectiveness of different drugs. And one of those processes is that a new drug or technology has to go through a committee that looks at all of the evidence around the efficacy of the drug, um, any potential dangers of that drug or technology being made available, and they also do a cost-benefit um, analysis. So in, in the case of PrEP, how many HIV infections could be averted for this amount of money? And we knew that that process had started. We knew that documentation for that process for PrEP to be reviewed had begun. But we also knew the amount of time that that process had to go out for public consultation. And in the spring of 2016, and we realised that something was afoot because NHS England hadn't released documentation for community participation. 
only very suddenly, towards the end of the process, when we thought we were sort of ready to move forward, for um, NHS to turn around and say they decided that they were not responsible for the provision of PrEP, so they couldn't commission it, they couldn't provide it because it wasn't their job, basically. And they didn't really have any clear idea of whose job it was. And that was the point where NAT as the policy and campaigning organisation, we felt, well, we'd been in existence since 1987, but we had never gone to court. We thought, if not now, when? And so our colleagues at National AIDS Trust decided to take um, NHSE link to court. Cut a long story short, we won. First in the High Court and then the Court of Appeal. One of the advantages of all of the all of the drama around PrEP access, so the court case and all of all of that kind of hoo-ha, meant that people were talking about PrEP. People were wanting to find out what this drug was. We saw a massive, massive fall in new HIV diagnosis. That was in part attributed to the numbers of, of us who were buying PrEP online, buying PrEP ourselves. We're now in a situation when PrEP is commissioned on the NHS across the whole of the UK. And we are seeing really massive falls in HIV. But what was striking was, one, the kind of media noise around it, much of which was, why should we spend money on PrEP when gay men can use condoms, even though the existence and availability of condoms was not stopping the spread of HIV completely, and PrEP is much more efficacious in that, was very cynical and highly stigmatising. And you, you realised how beneath the surface these attitudes were absolutely still in place, that gay men could only have sex at a price, and that price was the risk of HIV. And I remember, you know, when those press headlines came out in around 2015, 2016, and just being transported right back to 1988. And I did a Nick Ferrari call one morning on LBC and I vowed never to go back onto LBC again because it was horrific. It was the, mm. the, the, the homophobic undertones in the conversation were, were horrible. Um, so, yes, I guess, you know, in talking about the immense progress that absolutely has been made, including in attitudes, I mean, we shouldn't pretend that stigma now is what it was in the 1980s. I, I don't think one can claim that. Nevertheless, the fight isn't over. And I think what PrEP showed was that when, amazingly, we got what we'd always hoped we might be able to have, a pill once a day with minimal side effects that would be more or less 100% effective at stopping you getting HIV, the government choked and couldn't quite bring itself to fund it. And that, I think, says something profound about society's view of gay sex, society's view of prevention, and uh, society's view of HIV. As of the end of 2020, 73% of people living with HIV were accessing antiretroviral therapy globally. That means that 10.2 million people are still waiting. HIV treatment access is key to the global effort to end AIDS as a public health threat. Of all the people living with HIV in the UK, 89% are virally suppressed, which means we can't pass the virus on. There's still a lot of challenges, you know, that we've been dealing with forever. 
you know, in terms of understanding where we are with HIV. Those who are on treatment and are doing well on treatment can now, you know, they won't pass HIV on. However, many people living with HIV understand that and there are a lot of other scientists and policymakers who understand that but there are a lot of people in the communities who don't understand that and and that is a problem we have to make people understand that because it's still creating the HIV related stigma and discrimination and that is part of the end of HIV People living with HIV need to be comfortable at the community level with their families and, you know, supporting them and embracing them. And one last thing, what I want is for older HIV activists like us mm -hmm. to get together with younger HIV activists, you know, to learn from each other to support each other, to help each other out, to keep the movement going. We first met at Black Pride in um, 2017. You were giving out condom packs from prep store. And I remember clearly, we still have some upstairs actually. And um, it, it read, um, there's a drug that can stop you from getting HIV. Don't you think this should be available? And I remember knowing that what prep was and just thinking like, there's so many people that need to know about this that have no idea. Phil Samba is a young black man who has been at the forefront of fighting for PrEP access and information to a range of communities in the UK. And then from there, I just felt really inspired and just felt like I can, I feel like I can do something with this. I feel like I, I believe in this, I have an awareness of this, and I feel like a lot of people need to know about this. One of the very first things we did was uh, Mihimas for GMFA. What was Mihimas? Mihimas was a, it was a, a campaign uh, to promote more black gay and bisexual men to get tested. I got a lot of creative control, which was a lot of fun. And also doing the work, I kind of realized that growing up with straight black men, I kind of know the narratives and like what they think and how they react and how they respond to that. And also I have black gay friends now, black queer friends now, and also I knew how to target both and where I had a lot of freedom and control and like was able to change messaging and say this would work, that wouldn't work, we should do this, we should do that. That helped a lot and I think it just it kind of contributed to a core part of the success of the campaign because black queer men were behind it. I think being able to do health promotion, like you know, for us, by us sort of thing, kind of contributed to that. It just built and built and now here we are, four years later, and I'm working with you. <laughs> yeah, you certainly are. Certainly are working with you. I mean, Phil and I, I call Phil my son because we have that kind of father-son relationship as well as me mentoring him. He gives me a lot. But I do see a lot of myself in him when I was younger, that enthusiasm to make a change in his community, this recognition that there are so few of us doing that work over black gay men and Phil has stepped up so many times. So I definitely see that. And I just think there is a real 
connection between what I started to do 25, 30 years ago and what he's doing now, trying to start a conversation where people genuinely don't want to have that conversation. It's just about getting a test. It's not around looking at the psychosocial needs that might prevent or encourage you to want to avoid HIV. And when HIV becomes invisible, particularly for a younger generation, you base your prevention on that. It's, it's tricky, actually, because in one way, they have a lot more exposure to other Black queer people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more representation when it comes to like TV shows and films and like that sort of stuff. There's a lot more queer celebrities, queer Black celebrities as well out there, so they're seeing themselves more. But in terms of information and stuff like that, it's like, I feel like the generation after mine didn't grow up with the same fear as HIV as I did. And I think because of things like, and in a good way, because of things like prep, there's less of that fear. But I feel like they still need to learn more about their history and they still need to learn more about like what happened to their queer elders. Because of them lacking that connection to their history and lacking that connection to the generational fear that's passed on, their information is lacking. So if you don't think HIV is happening to your mates and you only have sex with people who are your age, then you think HIV is not there. Well, actually it is. And what we're seeing now are that younger people are getting HIV again, right? People who are in their early 20s, people who don't speak English the first language, who can't access or don't understand PrEP. There needs to be, I mean, to keep the conversation going, to keep HIV in the public consciousness, we need good sex and relationships education at school. We need people to be able to normalise HIV testing so it's available from GP practices, over the counter. You know, we, we've, we've changed a narrative around COVID testing, right? So we can do that with HIV. We need to be less tabooed about sex and having healthy sex and healthy conversations about it. And we also need to make sure that people with HIV have the ability and they're empowered enough to talk about their diagnosis. And those aren't just cisgendered white men of a certain age. They're not just celebrities. We have to enable everyday people who have HIV to be able to go into their communities, not on television, not in podcasts, not on bus campaigns, but to be able to be brave enough wherever they are, to talk about it. And that will start to shift the conversation. We are in this for life. We have our lives back and we keep moving. Movements are not just for one day. They're not just for one year. They keep moving. They keep adapting. They keep reforming. And we have to be able to see this movement through. this of everybody because time has passed and we are older and we are wiser now you're going back to 1990 that young ugandan woman is about to get on the plane and go back to uganda she's said to herself i'm going back to die with all this wisdom and this knowledge and this advocacy and all the things you've learned i've taken you back mm-hmm. she's about to get on that plane what are you going to say to her don't give up There's a beautiful life to be had and you shouldn't miss out on that.
So I've got a few pictures in here. Um, there's one which is like a Scrabble, Scrabble tiles, which uh, spells out Black Boy Joy on a pink background. And I keep it up here because it always reminds me that I need that Black Boy Joy in my life. And I also want to create that in the world. And then there's a really wonderful picture by Ajamu X, Britain's greatest black queer photographer. So I'm in my sixth decade now and I'm still really curious around the world and I still like showing off my new shiny toys to people. I really do. I, I like showing the stuff that I've created and put into the world because I get a buzz off of it because I know that it can bring people joy and that's what I like to do. And I'm a homebody and I've got a wonderful circle of friends. I'm a great uncle. I'm a godfather. I'm an uncle to loads of young people in my community now and I wear that with pride, you know, and I'm all grey now and I used to call my, I still do call my greyness my stripes because I think I bloody well earned them and you know, I'm still here. We spoke to so many people for this series who generously gave their time and shared their memories. You haven't heard all of the voices, but each one was instrumental in putting this podcast together. Thank you to all of you. We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown, the production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>